I'm Trevan Fanthorpe, and this is my book, The Song of Life Comes Through. Relative Time and Space and Present Moment Awareness For my teachers, Harriet, Holly and Ben, and for a generation of young people looking to make sense of an adult world. Everyone, however busy they are, has a thousand quiet moments to enjoy and to value and to love every day. Opening yourself up to those moments reconnects you with your true, wise and compassionate nature. Think of it like this. You're gazing up into the stars and in that moment you realise your eternal place in the universe. This is a playful narrative about tuning into our experience of being alive. Let's start by recognising that our centre of consciousness is the key to all of this. I used to know an Indian guru who called our centre of consciousness the Watcher. And it's important, if you want to understand what we're going to be talking about here, that you first find the Watcher and then always remember that the Watcher is right at the heart of who you are. Watching as a flow of life arises in the moment, one perception, one sensation, one moment at a time. If you've never searched for the watcher before, you might need to take a quiet moment and to focus on this task without being distracted. The watcher is that still and quiet point of awareness with a direct line to your brain. The watcher is the ultimate sensor transmitting a flow of momentary sensations and perceptions that arise in our consciousness to our brain. Once you've found the watcher, you'll know that you have a centre of consciousness at the very heart of who you are. And hey presto, you've become self-aware. From now on, it's always an option to step out of the noisy busyness, the white noise of life, and to get back to what's really going on, just being. Wiser people than me have pointed out that when we look closely at the flow of sensations and perceptions that our life is made up of, we human beings have developed two fundamental ways of engaging with it. We experience life first, and then we interpret or conceptualise it second. I like to play with the idea of there being a me and an I as a way of getting into those two fundamentally different ways that we humans engage with life. Bear with me. The reason for playing this me and I game is that it allows us to see a doorway, a doorway to freedom and beauty and a life full of possibility that's open nearby for anyone who chooses to walk through it and who gets the point. In this game, me and I have a gentle man's arrangement and a very special relationship, much like I imagine you and your me, but with a personal twist and possibly some sort of gender variation. It goes without saying, see what I'm about to do here, that me and I are not really two different people. I'm sure you get the idea, it's a literary affectation. Me and I operate out of a single body. That's me, folks and we naturally both focus on the flow of changing sensations in the physical, mental and emotional activity going on around and within that body. We're reacting and responding to the world around me and I 
from an embodied centre of consciousness, pretty much, I imagine, like you and your me. So, on with the me and I story. Simply put, I experiences life and me conceptualises that experience. I is alive and totally connected and interconnected with everyone and everything in the oneness arising in this present moment. And me is a personalised interpretation of that flow of aliveness. Me and I make a good team because me is all about language, which, as you know, is the main means of communication us human beings have developed together over the eons. Given that you're reading this and I'm thinking it through in my head and then writing things down in words, and given that the development of language and the sophistication of human communication has been a mighty cornerstone in building the modern world we all live in, me is doing a great job. Apart from all the invaluable assistance that he gives I, as I goes about I's everyday human activity, me brings meaning and purpose to the past and to the future, and to all the sensations and all the physical, emotional and mental activity going on in and around the body that we operate out of. Let me tell you about a lucid dream I once had. I'm hoping that it will give you, as it did me, a dreamlike insight into the origins of two different realms, everyday mind and presence, or what I've been playfully calling me and I. In the dream, I'm standing in a dark, shadowy cave, looking out on a baking hot and empty desert scene. A flat terrain of dazzling sun-baked sand, empty under a relentlessly drenching sun and sky, stretches in the heat from one rocky horizon to the other. Far off to my right... Something approaches across that vast, parched and hazy desert floor. Presumably some unlikely group of nomads is about to emerge from the unknown. Dust swirls up into a cloud and moves almost imperceptibly towards me. Something approaches anonymously as I gaze from my cave, fascinated to know who or what is causing that moving ball of dust. They must be heading, I can only imagine, right across my line of vision and on into the equally bare and very distant horizon I can see on the left as I look out at it from the welcome shade of the cave. I have no idea who or what this could possibly be or where they might be going. What could possibly be the purpose of this unidentified desert traveller's journey? If there's anywhere for them to get to, I don't know about it. This raging heat and empty desert landscape seems to go on forever. I'm absorbed and staring at this mysterious phenomenon for what seems like an age, until eventually, as it gets a little closer, I begin to make out an unidentifiable sound. Then, suddenly, it clicks into my understanding, and I know what it is. It's the sound of desert bells ringing. To my amazement, I now see with great clarity that it's a skeleton shepherd striding out and leaning into a wooden staff that he grips in his bony hand. 
In a very focused and purposeful manner, he's leading a flock of half a dozen skeleton goats across the baking desert sands. Cowbells hanging from their bony necks clang as they walk. As I stare, this profoundly mysterious procession passes slowly, timelessly and inexplicably across the flat and compacted desert sand in front of my eyes probably never knowing or caring that I'm watching them pass. The shepherd and his skeleton goats are self-contained and self-absorbed, and obviously on an inexplicably purposeful journey. Man and goats pass slowly by at a distance of 70 metres or so from where I stand looking out, mesmerised from the cool and protective shade of the cave I stand in. A human sound close by catches my attention and I remember, as I turn to see what it is, that there are, of course, two of us together there in the cave. We're Stone Age men, as one, friends and hunting partners, both burly and smudged in grime from head to foot. He's naked, I see, apart from an animal skin draped around his waist and I remember again in the moment that I'm similarly dressed. My companion is very physical. His wiry and muscular presence moves determinedly around in the dappled light of the cave. He turns to the wall with an animated movement, black shoulder-length hair matted around his face, and reaching out, he makes some sort of mark on the cave wall in front of our eyes, using a red-stained stick that I now see is holding. Or perhaps I'm wrong, maybe it's a bone or perhaps even a piece of rock. That action means nothing to me, of course, but I can see that his immediate and muscular presence is agitated and he wants to get my attention. He points at the mark and then points again at the shepherd and his timeless goats. In that instant, noticing something about the shape of the mark on the wall, I suddenly understand the connection he's making. I see that he somehow caught something about the shepherd and his skeleton goats in the mark he made on the cave wall. That mark, I now see, means the shepherd and the goats. At that very moment, another avatar of me arrives in the dream. I have a disorientating sense that I'm awake, and in the instant, my own voice, speaking with the tone of an all-knowing narrator from our present day, jolts me into a state of wide-awake attention by giving me the insight that you are witnessing the birth of language in humankind. Shocked, confused and still half asleep, but coming into my waking self now and emerging from the dream, I woke up in awe and amazement, realising I'd just witnessed a huge and significant human breakthrough. I believe that when my dream friend made his mark on the wall of the cave, it was the very first time that a human being had conceived as making a representation of part of the living, changing, moving and being oneness that life on earth is. And he did it with a simple mark made with a stick on a cave wall. No one had ever made that representational leap of faith before. Presence had been undivided until that moment.
In that dream instant, with the birth of language, human beings were changed forever. We took our first and formative step towards developing the everyday human minds that we have today. That dream, more than any other in my lifetime, has stayed bright and illuminating in my memory for many years, and its powerful insight shapes my thinking and my very being still to this day. That dream holds the key to me and I. It imprinted in my brain the huge significance that words and symbols have had for humankind, and it clarified how language came into being in the instant we learned to represent separate things from the oneness that life on earth is. It also says something in a dreamlike way that's difficult to comprehend but nevertheless very significant about how we may have experienced life as a timeless and empty space before language arrived to give us a new and uniquely human way of relating and being together. The timelessness and mystery encapsulated in this dream gives us a flavour of how life may have been for human beings before representation became the basis of all our thinking and the fundamental nature of our interpreting minds. That amazing human insight that we could represent something with a mark led human beings to the development of language, first in the form of drawings and symbols, then in letters and numbers until eventually it led to us developing our modern human world of verbal communication, talking, writing, reading, thinking, and the lives that we live today. The door to conceptualization was opened when we got that that mark on the wall meant a skeleton shepherd and his skeleton goats. When we did that, what it meant to be human changed. Today, we live in a world where each of us carries around from an early age not just a phone and an internet connection, but an amazing conceptualised interpretation or representation of the world and everything in it, including ourselves. It's all in our heads, in our everyday minds. We teach our children to read and write, to think and to understand life using that way of interpreting. Our thinking minds are our own system of highly sophisticated marks and they become so unconscious, habitual and embedded as our primary way of engaging with the world that most of us these days are unaware most of the time that we're actually engaged in an interpretation of life in our heads and that we're not engaged directly with life itself as it happens. We don't realise that we're eating the menu of life and not the meal. Our interpreting minds have developed to such an extent and been established from such an early age that I suspect most of us have almost completely forgotten that this interpretation is not our most fundamental and human experience. It's not our core human state, and of course, our thoughts could never be who we really are. Once we become self-aware and we watch how our mind works, 
It's only a matter of time before we realise that we are not and could never be the representation or interpretation of ourselves that we listen to in our heads. That's not us. It's just a representation. But we think it's true and confuse that representation with life itself. For instance, there are people who think that the way they interpret their feelings is true. They're blind to the fact that they've tuned out of the life they're actually living and into some thoughts and stories that are arising in their head about the feelings that they're experiencing. Sometimes we get fixated on those stories and our internal dramas. They can seem real when we're engaged with what's going on in our head, but they're certainly not true and they don't define who we are. They're just dramas going on in our head, and most of the time we're better off not believing in them. Our personal stories are an interpretation of who we are in exactly the same way that the mark that my Stone Age friend made on the wall was an interpretation of the skeleton shepherd I saw in the dream. Those stories are marks. They're not the real thing. Admittedly, nowadays, we have very clever and sophisticated interpretations going on in our minds. In fact, some of our mental and emotional dramas can be so convincing and seductive that all of us do get caught up and believe them to be true from time to time. The honest truth is that sometimes we momentarily believe that the story and internal drama going on in our heads is who we really are. But even though they seem so real and personal, those dramas are really just our habitual interpretations of events, phenomena and sensations. Our thoughts and ideas, our psychological and emotional identity and all the labels that we attach to every single thing that ever existed in life, the past, the present or the future, are just the fixed marks we made. They're the marks that add up to our representation, our interpretation of ourselves and our lives. They're not who we are. There's a lot of freedom to be found in not believing that that interpretation is you. Putting it another way, when we remember that I and me, or you could say presence and our everyday mind, are two very different ways of relating to life, we hold a wonderful key to self-awareness. All we need to do is turn that key and it unlocks a doorway to freedom and beauty. There's a problem that arises here. Remember the saying, you can take a horse to water but you can't make it drink? Well, let's say just for now that you're the horse and this doorway to freedom and beauty business that I'm rabbiting on about is the water. In this narrative, I'm a bloke juggling with words that are designed to take you down to the water's edge. But to spell it out as clearly as I can, once you're there, it's down to you to drink the water, horsey. I can't make you. Let me tell you a story. There came a time about eight years ago when I was made redundant by the college I worked at. At the age of 63, I felt well ready to treat that enforced retirement as an opportunity. It felt like a new freedom. I've been lucky enough to live with a brave and beautiful woman, a community activist for half of my long lifetime, and I'm surrounded by active and concerned friends, 
many of whom have chosen to take up the reins of personal responsibility in today's world by focusing in many different and individual ways, some practical, some business-like, some creative, some academic and so on, on what we all see as the urgent changes that we, along with the rest of the human race, need to make in our daily lives, our ways of living and our communal lifestyles if our children and grandchildren are ever to get back to having a sustainable and enjoyable lifestyle in the future and be part of a healthy and caring human race, alive and well on this planet. As I reach old age, it seems in some ways as if I've done a full circle of life and been retuned and reinvigorated. I have a deep and existential sense of freedom and of belonging in this life. I know that our life stories are all different, and I'm interested in what triggers the major turning points that seem to mark the quite different phases in people's lives. Me often thinks that my life took a turn for the worst, or at least entered into a more troubled period, when at the age of 39, my younger partner and I decided to get a mortgage and to take advantage of the property boom that was happening in England at that time by buying a house. Up until that point, I would have unreservedly described my young adult life as a wonderful adventure and an amazing journey. I'd come to expect that whatever circumstances I might find myself in, I'd be able to ride through those circumstances with a sense of freedom on a wave of willingness, lightness and enthusiasm, always expecting that opportunities would continue to materialise in the form of people and adventures that would add up to yet more of what had become a wonderful and fulfilling life. For me, life did take a turn when I was 39. I went into a decade or so of years that were much more changeable, unsettled and troubled. The good family times that I shared with my partner and later our two wonderful children in our new home contrasted strongly with periods of depression I went through and a deep, gnawing dissatisfaction that grew inside of me. It was to do with how I find myself having to work as a night shift taxi driver despite the numerous creative ideas and creative money-making schemes that I endlessly came up with to try and get myself out of that situation. Whereas I'd always lived an adult life that was not defined by the circumstances I happened to find myself in, at the age of 39, I began to be filled with a deep and heartfelt disappointment and disillusionment at not being able to find a more satisfying and meaningful way of making a living than cutting myself off from all my friends and passions while I spent years helping to pay a mortgage by driving a taxi at nights and sleeping alone in the daytime. I know people can and do get stuck in depressing and unhappy life stories and circumstances because it happened to me then and I found it very difficult to get out of those troubled times. Looking back, a shift of mindset was central to my eventually being able to move on. I was very lucky to have the support of my partner at that time, and together we were able to find a way of reducing the hours I spent driving taxis. I was eventually freed, once again, to spend some of my time making sculptures, while happily childminding our youngest toddler. The shift of mindset was this. 
During those first years of taxi driving, I became defined in my head by the job, and I identified most of the time with my internal drama about how my life had come to nothing and didn't work. I was very disappointed in myself and my inability to do anything about the unhappy practical circumstances I found myself in. I seemed like a failure to myself, and I was unable to truly drop that persistent image. While it's true that our little family did share many good times in those years, there were also many dark nights for me. Whenever I identified with that fixed image I had of myself, as a disappointed, dejected and failing creative person. As soon as I was able to reduce my taxi driving hours and spend more time with my family, I was no longer stuck in a job I didn't like. I was able to drop that unhappy, fixed identity. And despite the fact that I continued to drive those same taxis for many more years, I was alive and well again no longer stuck or struggling to get out of the circumstances I found myself in. That's a typical and painful me story, and that one held a power over me because even though I'd been practising present moment awareness all through those troubled years, when it came to identity, it hadn't occurred to me that, despite the circumstances, in a more meaningful way, I already had everything I ever needed in life. In those days, I still sometimes thought of me as a separate, isolated self that needed constant maintenance and attention. Shifting away from that long-time learned identity, that fixed and established set of ideas and recognisable patterns that I thought added up to someone called Travan, took a while. Even after the taxi driving job stopped defining my life and the good times returned, I still often had a recurring sense and fixed idea that I'd gone as far as I could in life, given that despite my present moment awareness practice, I was clearly still very self-oriented and I couldn't see any way of letting go of that self-orientation or of freeing up whatever was limiting me. For all the apparent contentment and fortunate circumstances I was now lucky enough to live in, My life in those days somehow seemed to close in around me like a golden cage. It looked beautiful from the outside, but inside, especially when I was alone, it sometimes felt like I was adrift with no idea where to go or what to do. I was trapped in a beautiful-looking but empty life, and I couldn't work out how to get out of a life that sometimes felt like a luxurious prison. That stuck self-image was like an existential angst and I continued to suffer from it for what seemed like a very long time until years later when the keys to unravelling an old and fixed identity began to reveal themselves. All of that was a thing of the distant past by the time I came to consider how I wanted to fill my retirement years. It was no longer enough for me to leave having a social conscience and any practical caring about the bigger things in society to other people, or to continue to hold it all at arm's length by merely giving my time and energy to supporting my partner in her busy programme of community action. I needed to give something back myself. The thing is, once you've made that decision, where do you go from there? 
There was a plus side to the way that I'd lived a small life and looked after my own little family for 20 years. After decades of taking care of the handful of people and the handful of things immediately around me, my family life and my surroundings were all fine. After all, that's what taking care of people and things does for you. When I wasn't being depressed about the world at large, it had often dawned on me that while I would never be rich, in a deeper and more fulfilling way, I had everything I could possibly want in life. It took me many years to realise that the only way to move on to stop stagnating in my own little life was to let go of my ultimately limiting self-orientation. I'd been focused on taking care of me and mine for many years and I needed to begin to learn how to give as much time and attention to other people and to the bigger world as me was in the habit of giving to myself and my own little world. I finally began to appreciate the freedom to be had in manifesting a generous and compassionate nature. But of course, two sides of that same coin showed up at the same time and it became crystal clear that I'd been in the grip of a lifelong habit, the habit of constantly being motivated by the distractions, the needs and the desires of me. I began to realise that, even though I'd learned to let go and not be affected by most of my internal dramas or those troublesome psychological and emotional stories that had run my early life, and I'd learned to spend my time doing the things that I really loved doing, and even though I was living with people I loved being around, and even though I'd learned to treat those people and the people I met in life with respect, and even though I gave the people I knew the space to go through what they needed to go through and the space to do the things they wanted to do and to be the person they were, whether I understood it or liked it or not, without me trying to change them for the better or to tell them how to live their lives. The bottom line was that underneath all that, all my big decisions had still been about me, my needs and my desires. I was at a loss with it all. When life seemed flat, meaningless and empty, all I had to keep myself sane and content was a practice of letting go into the present moment. It is liberating not to believe or to take personally the emotional dramas that are going on in your head and body and it's liberating to really get that a lot of your reactions to situations are almost irrelevant manifestations of your past mental and emotional conditioning. It's healing to remember that the emotions or psychological dramas that might come up for you today often don't mean anything relevant to your present life. When you realise that they're just carryovers from the past, you can stop believing them to be true or stop worrying about them. And I did, on a thousand occasions during those years when I sometimes felt trapped. But none of us has the ultimate answer to the problems we face in the world, and on a personal level, it's sometimes difficult to really get how to let go of the deep and underlying causes of your dis-ease or depression. Fortunately, it did finally begin to get through to me, years after I thought I'd already got it, that I really could trust in the universe to answer all my needs. 
For many years, I'd been intermittently experiencing myself as a totally connected and interconnected being, living in complete harmony with everyone and everything in the deep peace of presence at times. But when it came to getting into action or making day-to-day decisions, I was still putting lots of time, energy and hard work into sorting out me and my own little world and nothing much other than that. It began to dawn on me that while I'd been holding on to a picture of myself as a needy person, it was never going to be enough just to keep letting go into the present moment. However wonderful and transformative that experience is, and it is, it doesn't stop you sometimes focusing on the voice in your head, and it can't make me disappear while you're busy holding on to it. On the other hand, the moment you really get that the universe is really giving you everything you need in life and that it always will, you'll be astonished once again to realise that you are fundamentally and deeply contented person, that you are thoroughly relaxed in your life and that you are completely at home in the present moment. When that happens, it's important to allow the realisation and that deep sense of well-being to change your practical day-to-day thinking and priorities. As your sense of freedom and okayness grows, you need to be willing to simply let go of your old patterns of self-oriented thinking and any habituated behaviours you have that tend to cut you off from other people and from being just simply present. Never mind that there's an unending stream of things that your everyday mind still says you need and a list of jobs involved in getting those things. You now have a deep and contented sense of being at home in life. And now that you're no longer focused on what me wants or fulfilling a list of me's desires, the situation is different. You're now simply okay whenever you're simply present and you finally have the time and space to respond to what might be good for the people you live with and for the planet you live on. Time for better ways of living. Once these things began to dawn on me, my priorities changed. I challenged myself to stop habitually being motivated to action by me and my thoughts. I set out to contribute towards the well-being of other people and the planet that I live on, by being present whenever I could be. It was a chicken and egg situation. Which came first, the realisation that generosity works for everyone or my decision to give up on being so self-oriented and to manifest a more generous nature? Anyway, I had the idea quite early on that by sharing one or two of the wonderful things that happened to me earlier in life and the stories and the experiences that turned me on to present moment awareness, I might be able to help other people to find freedom in their own lives. It seemed possible and obviously worthwhile, but I didn't quite know how to go about it. I may not always have acted on it, but I've always held on to an optimistic vision that Even in the face of the awful probabilities we face when we consider the future, we humans, even at this late hour of the darkening environmental day, might still find a way to live harmoniously on the planet. However unlikely it seems, we human beings might just rediscover how to live in a sustainable way with each other, 
with all the creatures of the earth and with the planet itself. That vision is very precious to me. Have you ever decided to energise your life by committing yourself to manifesting a vision that's both close to your heart and bigger than just your own little life? If not, I'd recommend it. For me, it was always going to be a case of act local, think global. And given that you should be picturing me as an old man here, contemplating his retirement years, I have to admit that it was also always going to be a case of better late than never, by the time I finally got the urge to give something back. What can I say? Anyway, what to do became the question. My life has been largely anonymous and unexceptional in every respect except one. I've been into an idiosyncratic and wonderful sort of present moment awareness since the 70s, but for most of that time I've found it difficult to communicate. Eight years ago, newly retired and faced with my better late than never need to make a positive contribution in in a world full of humans who seem to be hurtling towards self-destruction, I vowed to give it another go. Given that my limited skills are mostly things that I've learnt from being an artist and a musician, and lacking a better option, I set about doing my bit in an unlikely manner by writing songs of freedom and singing them for people. I spent many hours listening to Zen talks while making the Life in the Hedgerow drawings you might be able to see here, and I began making random notes and considering how to communicate something that I knew would be immensely useful for anyone setting out into adult life. The one exceptional thing that someone once showed me, and that I most want to communicate, is something that takes no time or training at all. It's not difficult to do, and yet it has the potential to liberate, transform, and totally change the life of anyone who really gets it. Unfortunately, when it comes to present moment awareness, if you ask a hundred people what they think it means, you'll get a hundred different answers. So eventually I thought, I need to get down to the essence of what I mean by present moment awareness and distinguish that from all of those other 99 things people think they know about presence or mindfulness. First of all, because as my son says, where you draw the line is a very personal and idiosyncratic thing, I want to make it clear what I'm not talking about so that we can cut through all sorts of misunderstandings and misplaced assumptions that you might have about the particular sort of present moment awareness that I am actually talking about. I was watching a period drama on TV the other day, and my attention was caught by the main character, our heroine, when she said, We're not alive, are we, if we're not trying to better ourselves? She seemed to be summing up so much of modern life and what we all spend our time doing. It struck me that present moment awareness, in the way that I mean it, is nothing to do with bettering yourself. The present moment awareness that I'm talking about is not an awareness that's measurable or even necessarily observable, and it doesn't make you a better person. It's not even something that you'd ever get to be good at. It's an awareness That's much more about simply being human. The sort of present moment awareness I'm talking about doesn't necessarily show, 
and it's not something you could ever get right. So it's not going to be something that will ever make you look good, however much you practice it or think you're good at it. There have been many occasions over the years when I've overheard people around me say things like, well, he doesn't look very aware to me. Look at the way he's doing that. That's one of the downsides to putting your head above the parapet. People judge you. On the other hand, lots of people have said to me, you always seem like a very aware person to me. That's because, understandably, people associate awareness with certain sorts of behaviour and they either do or don't see that sort of behaviour and the sort of aware manner they're looking for in me or you. What people make of you is more to do with how their own mind works than anything you happen to be doing. I want to make it clear before we get into this that I'm not talking here about getting enlightened or being good at meditation or being great at mindfulness or having a wonderful body awareness and I'm not talking about being bright-eyed and beautiful or particularly calm and serene in any way. What I'm talking about here is not about that, but it will transform your life. And, if you happen to have a competitive or ambitious nature, perhaps I should mention before we go any further that this sort of present moment awareness is not about being woke and it's not about being socially or politically knowledgeable or about being well-informed or about being particularly insightful and intelligent. I don't claim to be any of those things. They're all wonderful qualities and I admire and respect the people I know who are so much more socially and politically aware and intelligent and insightful than I am. And it's always good to be around people who seem to be calm and peaceful all the time, but that's not the sort of awareness I'm talking about here either. The sort of awareness I'm talking about is not something you need to aspire to or work at. You don't need to climb up towards it on some sort of mental, emotional or spiritual ladder of achievement or get involved in any sort of determined bid to reach your own peak performance. This sort of present moment awareness won't contribute to any conscious or unconscious program you might have to do with being the best you that you can possibly be. Good for you if you're going for it. But the sort of present moment awareness I'm talking about here is not about that either. And, just in case you are wondering, this is not me trying to sell you some sort of meditation or mindfulness or yoga training or practice, or trying to turn you on to some sort of spirituality. If you're into those things, that's wonderful. But they're just not what we're talking about here. At this point, you might well be thinking, well, if it's not about any of those things, what's the point? Why should I be interested? That's the difficulty in trying to interest busy people in something that they can't pin down and that doesn't seem to fit readily into their busy agendas. The present moment awareness I'm talking about is experiential and not conceptual. So however much you think about it, or however intelligent you may or may not be, you'll never get it by thinking about it. The present moment awareness I'm talking about is not what you think it is. On the other hand, this sort of present moment awareness couldn't be simpler once you get it, and it 
does put you in touch with the very core of what it is to be a human being. And it allows you to observe the workings of your mind from quite a different, new and illuminating perspective. Without being deep at all, this present moment awareness always takes us to the very core of our human experience. At our very core, we're human beings being the clues in the name. If we pause our busy agendas for a moment and simply experience the experience that we're experiencing, we find ourselves entirely as we are, with no stories attached. At our core, we're already a fully integrated part of an all-inclusive and totally interconnected matrix of life that we can experience but we could never understand. This simple but elusive sort of present moment awareness is based on us distinguishing between our concepts and our experience, between our everyday mind and presence, between me and I. By letting go into the present moment, we find ourselves in what people have called oneness. Without it being anything special, we experience presence and know beyond any doubt because it's an experience and not a thought or an idea that just this is who we really are and just this is where we are truly alive. We reconnect with our very ground of being. As an old Zen master once said, just this is it. If we practice pausing our thinking minds and let go into the present moment, we've found that two-way switch a simple way of letting go of our everyday default setting where our focus is usually on something in our thinking mind and reconnecting with just being. Using that two-way switch in our everyday lives, we now have a direct connection when we're just being with the absolute. And with that connection, the central paradox of being human is revealed. On the one hand, we live in our own individual, unique and busy world of me and we think and act in our own best interest a thousand times a day. Whether we happen to be finding somewhere new to live today or just deciding what we're going to have for dinner. We might be wrestling with a complicated business decision or just deciding who we're going out with tonight or which film to watch or which guitar to buy. Who knows? But one thing's clear, we're all busy me individuals dealing with a thousand different little personal things every day. Our everyday minds are busy places, even when we're having a lazy day. On the other hand, whenever we turn our attention away from that busy agenda, by shifting our awareness away from what we're thinking and into simply experiencing what's going on in the present moment, we reconnect directly with what it is to be alive. We find ourselves alive in a living world that isn't busy at all. The paradox of our human lives is that we live both in a complex world that seems to be in the middle of a global crisis and at the same time we live in a world that seems to be timeless and perfect just the way it is. One world but two very different ways of engaging with it. That's what this me and I narrative is all about. 
It's nothing to do with finding the secret of life itself or being someone with an amazing vision or awareness that sets you apart from other people. This narrative is about recognising a piece of the jigsaw of life. Many years ago, someone gave me a simple piece of the jigsaw of life. And when I slotted that piece into position at the centre of my own life, everything was transformed and filled with aliveness, beauty and freedom. So now I'm doing my best to pass that piece of the jigsaw on to you by reminding you about something you already know. For 10 years now, I've been working at communicating this piece of the jigsaw insight. And for most of those years, the best way I could think of doing that, being an artist and a musician, was to write songs of freedom and to let the song of life come through in those songs and in the life in the hedgerow drawings I was making. Being an artist and a musician surrounded by friends who've chosen to be hard-working and community-minded doctors or scientists or firefighters or eco-warriors or entrepreneurs or teachers... I live in a world where I know people who have taken up all sorts of valuable and caring professions. Whereas for me, writing songs, singing and making drawings and paintings is just about the beginning and the end of what I've been able to contribute. This Song of Life Comes Through narrative is built around a dozen of the songs I wrote and now sing for people. I've been out and about doing my best to turn people on to present moment awareness, hoping not to make it sound like a big deal. I wrote songs designed to capture people's imagination, and I made drawings that communicate a sense of spaciousness, freedom and beauty. And now, with this narrative, I'm aiming to bring those songs and ideas together in this one place and hoping, as always, to turn people on to the life full of possibility, freedom and beauty they're living right now. Let me tell you a story. This story might throw a bit of light onto what present moment awareness and letting go into the present moment means to me personally. It's a story about something that happened to me many years ago in 1974. I was 25 years old and I'd just left teaching to be an artist. As you might imagine, I was a very driven and intense young man, highly motivated and fully intent on becoming a successful and famous international artist because I wanted to have a voice that would be heard by lots of people. Of course, it had nothing to do with me wanting to be rich or famous for its own sake. Of course not. How could you possibly think that of me? I wanted, more than anything else, to have a voice and to be heard. With the conviction of youth driving me on, I just knew that I'd do great things one day. I'd change the world in wonderful ways through my art. I was the sort of young man who wasn't going to let anything stand in his way. My secret fate, ha-ha, was nothing less than to be the 20th century Leonardo da Vinci. If you googled me recently, you'll have a pretty good idea of how all that worked out, without me needing to go into the sobering details. Anyway, back to what happened when I was 25. As I said, I'd recently given up being a teacher to be an artist, 
But the fact is, I was still thinking like a teacher, and I approached being an artist in a very teachery and studenty way. At 25, that was the only way I knew how to function. My background and professional experience up until that time comprised nothing more than 16 years of education. So I set about educating myself to be an artist. I decided to begin by getting to know everything there was to know about art history. First, I rather randomly chose to start my studies with the Impressionists and then to work my way forwards, trawling through all the major art movements and most important artists of the 19th and 20th centuries until I reached the present day. Bearing in mind that there was no internet in those days, I was ploughing through all the books I could find for a couple of years before I moved on to avidly studying every word and every page of the most contemporary and cutting-edge art magazines that I could find until I thought I had a real grasp of exactly what the contemporary art world was all about. I remember thinking that by the time I'd done all that reading and looked at all those thousands of pictures, I'd really know what was going on in the art of the present day, and I would find myself at the very cutting edge of art thinking and practice. Then I would simply emerge from my cocoon as a fully formed young artist, living and working at the very avant-garde of artistic expression in the exciting world of the 1970s. That was my modest plan. I was working on Premier League art world domination. But, luckily or unluckily for some, that's not quite how things worked out. What really happened was that I ended up moving to The Hague in Holland with my girlfriend and throwing myself and my youthful arrogance into making life-size sculptures built around radical social messages that I wanted to communicate to an unseeing and uncaring world. I spent all my days at Sicopolis, a so-called free academy, while my girlfriend finished writing the sociology PhD she was working on. She was a very clever person. I loved her a lot. While I was making sculptures at Sicopolis, I met someone who my friends told me was a famous sculptor. He was a charismatic older guy who knew everything there was to know about sculpture, and he soon became my hero. He was my amazingly successful sculptor role model and he went on to become my first real adult mentor. Rudy Royakas had already done everything I wanted to do in life, and luckily for me, he seemed to find my naive brand of humorous intensity and first shy, then showy creativity interesting. I guess he liked my hard-working and driven ethic. Whatever it was, Rudy and I had a great connection from the very first time we met. Let me just give you an overview of the situation. I was a 25-year-old English guy who didn't speak any Dutch and who'd just given up being a teacher in England 
to pursue his youthful vision of being an artist in Holland. Arudi was one of five internationally known Dutch artists who'd come together to turn the empty shell of an old art college in Den Haag into Sikopolis, a free-thinking academy of art and a radical and creative space for hundreds of self-motivated, mostly young artists from around Europe to make art and to connect in. Sikopolis was run along radically alternative lines to any mainstream educational facility that you are likely to find in the Technopolis that us young artists and musicians thought we lived in back in the 1970s. That was a time when creative young people were into being part of alternative societies. So I was in my element and threw myself into doing artwork that was hard-hitting and as rich in content as I could imagine. Thinking that I was making radical social commentary, I didn't realise for quite a while in my youthful naivety that I was also making very personal artistic statements and laying myself bare by deliberately bringing things up from the depths of my complicated young mind and turning them into life-size multimedia sculptures for everyone to look at. It was a very interesting, inspiring and revealing time. My work, being ambitious in that way, stood out from most of the things many of the less driven people at Sikopolis were making. Fortunately, Rudy... Recognising that I was going for it, was very supportive and encouraging. He gave me all the technical help I asked for without ever telling me what to do. Sikopolis was all about encouraging free thinking. I was delighted to find out that Rudy also had a girlfriend, Ruth, who seemed to me to be a wonderful, independent and mature woman. I'd heard rumours about the unconventional and I thought admirably independent lives they apparently lived as artists. And despite being with Ruth, Rudy lived most of the time on his own in a ramshackle studio space in town. It all seemed very exciting and mature to me. They had the sort of lifestyle and loving relationship that I aspired to when I was 25. One day, I plucked up the courage and asked Rudy if I could visit his studio to see the work he was doing. It was a very big deal for me. I was daring to step into the personal world of a very successful sculptor, a much older guy who was also a hero of mine and a person who'd already achieved everything I wanted to achieve in my own life. When I got to Rudy's corrugated iron industrial shed of a studio in town, I was quite nervous and awestruck, but also staying strong and curious and as open as young people can be. Once inside and admiring the amazing life-size sculptures spread around the old wooden-floored studio space, I was filled with respect for the vastly more experienced artist I could now see Rudy was. I wanted to use this opportunity to find out everything I could about Rudy Royakas, his work and his artistic vision. After a while, chatting and looking at things, we decided to have a cup of tea. I found myself asking Rudy rather naively how he'd got to be a successful sculptor. After all, 
that was top of my own agenda, and the question was always on the top of my mind. I really wanted to know how to become a successful professional sculptor. Luckily for me, Rudy didn't give me the sort of answer I was expecting. Dismissing the whole question of fame and success with a shrug of the shoulders, he made some comment about the boring things he'd had to do to get to where he was. And then we moved on in our conversation, talking and drinking tea. At the same time, Rudy obviously realised I was a young man with a dream and someone looking for useful tips. And within a few seconds, he was kind enough to mention something in passing about relative time and space. I was forced to ask, what do you mean? Do you mean to say you've never heard of relative time and space, asked Rudy, with a look of amazement on his face. No, says I. So he had to tell me what he was talking about. Don't you know, there are two sorts of time. There's the time you see on the clock, that's chronological time, and there's relative time, the time that we live in, you know, like now, 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 experiential time. And there are two sorts of space. The space we measure in kilometres or millimetres or miles or inches, that's three-dimensional space, the sort of space that we can measure. And then there's this space that we live in, here, experiential space, relative space. It's a living space. We live in relative space and time. The instant I heard Rudy explain that, my awareness shifted. I was suddenly in relative time and space, and I instantly got what he was talking about. I immediately realised that Rudy was sharing something very special with me. At 25 years old, it had never occurred to me that there were two different sorts of time and space in that way until that moment. Pointing at the clock on the wall, Rudy made it clear to me in an instant the sort of time that clock was about, how it related to something you might describe as a wonderfully conceived everyday human system of timekeeping. And at the same time, he made me realise how that system of timekeeping, while being very useful, is as nothing compared to another more wonderful sort of time, relative time, the time that we experience, the time we're alive in. What I love about Rudy calling what was to me an amazing new experience of presence, relative time and space, is that it's so graphic and undeniable. There really are two very different sorts of time, not just the one that we're all thoroughly familiar with because we've all learned how to read a clock or the time we see on our phones. And there really are two sorts of space, not just the one we use to find our way around every day. When someone or something reminds us that it exists, we remember that there's another sort of time. When our awareness is shifted away from our thinking mind and tunes into our experience, rather than just hearing the words now, 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 we find ourselves in relative time and space. There's nothing difficult or complicated about it at all. Relative time is an experience. We can all shift our awareness into it, but for some reason we keep forgetting that sort of time and that way of experiencing life exists. For me, that experience I had in Rudy's studio was like discovering a new dimension to life, 
and one that I'd been blind to for 25 years. I instantly had a wonderful sense of aliveness and a hugely liberating insight into the complicated life that I'd been living until that point. The first 25 years of my young life had been complicated, I could now see, by the way I held on to my own thoughts about myself and constantly bought into the confusion of my internal dramas, forever trying to interpret and untangle the complicated feelings I had about myself and other people. I treated my thoughts as if they were the basis of who I really was, without ever being aware that I had any choice in the matter. Now, living in this new dimension of relative time and space... I had an insight into, and a new freedom from, all that complication. It made such a strong impression on me that for nearly 50 years since then, I've never stopped loving or practising that shift of awareness, out of my thinking head and into relative time and space. That shift of awareness transforms everyday life into something wonderful every time. I don't remember anything much else about my visit to Rudy's place that afternoon. But by the time I left, I was like a kid with a new toy. Being alive in relative time and space was literally awesome and amazing. I loved it. My old life was blown away by it. Suddenly, I was deeply fascinated by whatever was happening in every single moment of my life deeply curious about what might be behind any door I was about to open and absolutely enchanted by every person I met. It was like constantly being in a new world. That afternoon in Rudy's studio in Den Haag in 1974 turned out to be one of the most liberating times of my entire life and it changed the way I looked at everything from then onwards. I've come to realise, after speaking to a lot of people and reading a lot about different sorts of present moment awareness over the years, that the way Rudy introduced me to presence, describing it as relative time and space, was very unusual. Like you, I've never met anyone else who looks at life in exactly the way I do, and I'm sure I never will. And because that's how it all started, my path unlike anyone else I've come across, has been a journey of contrasting experiences, a sort of black and white journey through two different realms. I've stumbled across whatever freedom I've found through two quite different sorts of time and space, and I've spent a lot of time getting familiar with those two realms and discovering the best way to travel between them. In one of those realms, I'm still the old me, But I always like to point out that in the other realm, I'm not the new me because I don't want you to think I'm talking about becoming a better version of the old me. Being in presence is not about that at all. Letting go into relative time and space is an entirely different phenomenon. It's nothing to do with becoming a better person or improving yourself. And it's not what you think it is so it'd be more accurate to describe the person I am in presence as simply being new or just being, where being is an experience and not a concept. 
Talking about relative time and space is quite difficult because letting go into the present moment is an experiential thing, accessed through a very subtle action. It takes a shift of awareness, not thinking, because presence is not just an idea to evaluate. Using words to describe it, as I'm doing here, it's easy to get the idea, but it's also easy not to get the experience at all. This narrative is about choosing the experience of presence and discovering a freedom there from your everyday default mind setting. It's about engaging with life in a different way. It goes without saying that we all see life in different ways. So it's all very well me telling you about how I spontaneously got what Rudy was talking about and how I had my first conscious experience of relative time and space. But I know now, after years of listening to people's individual and diverse experiences, that all sorts of different processes and aha moments trigger that experience for different people. Let me tell you another story. Me and my sister and our other halves were having a special meal and a few glasses of wine one evening. And I was telling my sister the Rudy story about these two different sorts of time. I was doing my best to communicate what it is to let go into relative time and space so that she'd do it for herself. I know that letting go into relative time and space opens the door to a lot of freedom. So I always like to share it with people especially people I'm close to. A rather wobbly good time was had by us four old-timers until eventually it was getting late and we decided to stumble off to bed and get some sleep. The next morning, the sun was shining and we headed out for a walk around their sleepy village. My sister was playing at being a tour guide and giving the three of us tourists an ironic guided tour of all the latest rather minimal happenings and describing to us all the new and exciting developments currently causing a fuss in that sleepy little place where nothing much had changed. We looked over a fence at a new community garden by the railway station and it wasn't raining. So what more could you want? After a while, she and I stopped walking before setting off with the ducks down a path alongside the village stream. And while we were waiting for the other two to catch up, we had a quiet moment and an intimate little brother and sister chat, as you do. My sister said to me something along the lines of, You know when you were talking about relative time and space? Well, I almost get it, but I think I'm one of those people who has everything in my head and I'm not quite sure... I said, look, I'll show you how to do it. And this is what I'd recommend for anyone who's not sure if they get relative time and space. First of all, notice that you're thinking, yeah? Then let go of that and bring your awareness into your body and the present moment and look around. When she did that, we immediately found ourselves truly together standing side by side, just looking around from the same place in the same moment, as we always are, but we hadn't been aware of it in that way until then. I said, so we're here, and this is where we're alive. This is where everything is alive, and this is who we really are, just this. And I'm not sure, I said, 
because I'm a visual person, but I'm guessing that you can see, like me, just by looking around, there aren't any boundaries anywhere. It's all completely interconnected oneness. There aren't any separate bits. It's worth noticing that wherever you look, there aren't any separate selves anywhere until your mind starts making a fuss about you being a unique person and all that. This is us at our very ground of being. This is what it is to be a human being. This experience, just being here, is right at the core of who and what we really are. Here we are, alive in a living, changing oneness. We had a little radiant and loving moment, brother and sister smiling at each other, and my sister said, Hey, I'm going to practice that. And I said, Yep, it's a practice, that's what it is. And I went away happy that she'd got it. Just to clarify at this point, and in case you missed it, let me say again as clearly as I can that what I'm calling letting go into the present moment isn't any sort of personal achievement. My lovely sister didn't just achieve something. Letting go into the present moment is a very simple practice that takes you into the very core realm of our shared human experience. It's almost too simple to describe. You just need to do it, not think about it. It doesn't need years of training. This is the most basic of practices. It just takes you to let go into the present moment and have the experience for yourself. It's more a question of recognising or remembering something that nearly all of us do already, but that we don't usually notice or value. One thing that struck me years ago when me and my partner had our own two babies in the house, was that babies all live in the present moment. And it also goes without saying that we were all babies once. So we all started life living in the present moment before we developed our interpreting minds. Present moment awareness is something we're born with, but that we get distracted from or educated out of. On a very fundamental human level, we're all thoroughly familiar with the realm of presence or being or just experiencing what it is to be alive by living in the present moment, even if we've never heard that experience described as relative time and space. But once we remember and re-own that experience again as an adult, it's like rediscovering a wonderful and shared experiential homeland Presence is where we truly live. I'm doing my best to encourage people, especially young people setting out into adult life, to remember and reconnect with that experience of relative time and space and to experience it for themselves. That's why I sing songs about it. Here's how you can turn present moment awareness into a practice instead of just reading about it. First, notice that you're thinking and let go of that. Shift your awareness into your body and the present moment and simply become aware of being exactly where you are. Tune into your experience, not your thoughts, and remember in that way what it is to be alive. It's quite different to reading about it on this page. 
Who knows? You might just enjoy a wonderful moment, the experience of being alive in the world, in the specific living moment that you find yourself in. That is, until your mind kicks in again and you're back in your head and that normal way that we have of engaging with life through our agenda. Practicing in this way, you become familiar with me and I and how these are the two most fundamental, different and core ways that us human beings engage with life. Whenever I remember, I always find that I'm engaging with life either conceptually or experientially. And I'm pretty sure that's true of you too. We're either in our heads or we're simply present, connected and alive. Unfortunately, almost without exception, us modern folk are so habituated to engaging with life conceptually, so used to being caught up and identified with the subtle narrative that quietly continues, so motivated by the thoughts in our head, that even if we had an eye-opening experience of relative time and space sometime, we still forget it and return time and again by default and usually without even being aware of it to our everyday mind and its habitual and conceptually based relationship with the everyday world that we think we live in. We make up stories about life. It's a very subtle thing, but once you notice it, you'll find it's true. We modern human beings seem to have a default position when it comes to what we are truly aware of. Don't you think it's strange that an awareness of presence isn't that default position? Given that we're only truly in touch with what it means to be alive and who we are when we're directly experiencing the oneness we're all alive in, you'd think that us human beings would have a default awareness setting in being, but we don't. I can only assume that for the name human beings to have caught on and stayed with us, at one time in history our ancestors' default awareness setting must have been in being. But the fact remains that in our modern world the default position for our awareness is in our everyday mind. Because of that, once we've tasted the freedom and the beauty of being simply present, if we want to reconnect with it, we actually have to relearn how to shift our awareness back into presence by first noticing and then letting go of what's going on in our heads and by consciously dropping that default relationship we have with the world. Please don't misunderstand me. Unless you're intent on being a monk or a nun and giving up all your worldly goods, there's nothing wrong with having a conscious agenda and managing your daily life. You probably have a list of things you want to do and you're using your brain to deal with those day-to-day -day issues. The point is, if you can be present while you're working on those activities and ideas, well, that's the way to be. When it comes to questions of identity and our experiential, mental and emotional landscapes, it's a little more complex. We all have a personal history that makes us unique. My mum was my mum, and she wasn't yours. I grew up where I grew up, and not where you grew up. I'm a certain age, and I have a unique personal history. I've done a certain bunch of things in my life. I've been to certain places in the world, met certain people. 
and I've made certain decisions. And given that I'm one of the fortunate ones, I've always had a certain bigger or smaller pile of possessions to take care of, to manage and to enjoy at different times. Presented like that, as a bunch of uncomplicated and recordable facts, my personal history is not a problem. But we all know, if we think honestly about it, that we do make problems for ourselves around the things that we identify with, the labels that we put on ourselves and other people, and the way that we interpret the things that happen to us. Let me tell you a story. As you might have noticed, my family name is Fanthorpe. One day, another of my sisters asked me a very interesting question. She said, Which bits of you do you think of Fanthorpe things? You know, specifically Fanthorpe things. We were walking in the hills at the time, and as I paused momentarily to consider how to answer, I became aware of my physical movements and the voice coming out of my mouth. I said, I guess nearly everything I do is Fanthorpe, really. All my body language, all this stuff, is what I picked up by unconsciously copying mum or dad. And the way I say things and the language I use is mostly just the way I learned to talk when I was a kid at home. So I guess nearly everything I do is a fan-thought thing, really. But the thing is, I don't label myself nowadays. When I was younger, I used to try and change those fan-thought things. I didn't want to be like my mum and dad. I wanted to do different stuff and better things with my life and to stop doing the things that reminded me of what I didn't like about my childhood. These days, I don't label myself in that way, so I don't regard any of those things as fixed parts of me or anything I need to worry about or change. Whatever it is that I'm doing, it doesn't mean anything. I don't need to take any of it on board like a label or something to believe about myself. I don't think of myself as a fixed person who behaves in a certain identifiable way, good or bad. So there might be fan-thought things, but that doesn't mean anything, and we don't need to do anything about them. This is just the way I'm moving or the way I'm speaking right now. There's nothing more to it. This is another one of those me and I stories. Me labels things and likes to treat things and people as if they're fixed and identifiable phenomena. That's just the way you are, says me citing a list of strong characteristics, personal qualities and a bunch of psychological and emotional judgments and limitations as if they were the truth about you or me. And I is free, relaxed and deeply content to interact in the moment, trusting that the universe will bring everything I will ever need in life without me needing to introduce the mental or emotional drama that me likes to deal with. Just let go of it, I says. Don't get caught up in what used to be the psychological drama you spent a lot of time thinking and worrying about. Relax into the present moment. Be just the person you are and focus on what's happening right now. When you practice present moment awareness, you notice that you're often caught up in a subtle internal dialogue, interpreting your life as you see it, rather than living it directly in presence. It's something we all do. A well-known personal and social transformation teacher in the 80s used to say, we eat the menu of life and not the meal. 
we all have a, a certain uniquely personal way of interpreting what's going on around us and a persistent sense of me and who we are that continues through life. Even when we're not consciously thinking about it, there's still a subtle but persistent story going on in our heads, telling us what's going on. We also have a set of conditioned reactions that we label me, and we all know my preferences and desires and fears and loves and hates and much more about ourselves. This is where all the complications in our life originate. We have quite fixed ideas about who we are. While in presence we experience our potential to be free beings, living in the flow of life, totally interconnected and embedded in an interplay of action and interaction that's essentially not personal. But in our minds we interpret what's happening from a very personal viewpoint. Sometimes our interpretation is quite harmoniously tuned into what's happening and we're able to let go into the moment and go with the flow. But at other times we react to some event and get stuck and caught up on something that disturbs me. Whenever we're stuck, me feels like a separate being, alienated to some degree from the rest of the world. We get stuck because me is attached to things that me wants or doesn't like, and truths that me doesn't want to face up to. Me attaches emotional reactions and psychological stories to events, and those mental and emotional dramas disturb our equilibrium and obscure our simple sense of being present with no stories attached. Let me tell you a story. I'm driving my car in the back streets near where I live. I'm awake and quietly tuned in to what's going on around me. I'm enjoying a peaceful and untroubled everyday driving experience and alert to what's happening around me on the road. Then, as I'm just about to pull out and turn left at a small, quiet, local roundabout, some crazy guy approaching from the right decides to put his foot on the gas and blasts across the roundabout in front of me. It's not a life-threatening thing. I'm travelling quite slowly, but it forces me to hit the brakes, and the point is, I take it personally. I pull to a stop, I throw up my hands in mock despair, and I mumble to myself, what an idiot. Then I get a sort of nervous fluttering in my guts and need to let go of the feeling that I've been in danger. In that moment, I have a choice. I can either continue to give life and energy to that idiot in the car by building the whole drama in my head and probably knowing me, imagine some terrible revenge that I'll definitely wreak on him next time, or I can choose to bring my attention and awareness back into the present moment and continue on my now peaceful way. Here's another example. Me and my friends are in a lively bar enjoying the music and the togetherness, the good vibes and the relaxed atmosphere of a friendly place. We're listening to a live jazz band. Somewhere above the hub-hub of the bar, I overhear someone I don't know say something very cruel about me. Before I can do anything about it, I'm instantly hurt. I take it personally, and I feel isolated in my body and unfairly judged. It's not life-threatening, 
but it is momentarily a painful emotional experience. In that instance, I can choose to continue taking that cruel comment personally and give energy to the incident by taking it on board and getting caught up in my reaction to it. I could get into considering the validity of their comment about me. Is it really true? Or I could stray into a little bout of self-criticism. Or I might be outraged and frustrated and caught up with the idea of doing something about it and dream up some revenge. Whatever my personal reaction happens to be, I could be busy mulling the whole episode over in my head, giving energy to a painful experience and allowing it to be the main thing that's going on in my life. My focus could be on what I'm thinking about and not on where I am or the event going on around me. Or I could just let go of that internal drama recognise it with a shrug as being more about the person saying it than it is about me, and reconnect with the present moment and the enjoyable scene I'm a part of. This is about how we take things personally. Coming back into presence is not about escaping unpleasant experiences by pushing them away, and it's nothing to do with looking at life through rose-coloured glasses. It's not to do with positive thinking. It's about recognising and remembering that at our core, we're always totally at home in the realm of being and remembering by letting go into the present moment that there isn't really a separate self called me to be hurt or to take things personally. It's just that as events in life occur, they trigger reactions relating to our interpretation of what's going on. Me keeps surfacing, but we can always choose to let go of the drama and return to the present moment and to the liberating and core human experience of just being right now. We're alive and what happened did happen, but it didn't mean anything that I need to take personally or hold on to. Life goes on. I want to tell you about the time back in 1974 when my lovely girlfriend left me and went off with another man, and how I discovered some tough but very useful things about presence in the midst of what was a profoundly painful experience. The pain and the sorrow I felt were not just out there somewhere in the world at large, they were very much in me, in my body and in my mind. That intense pain was in my thoughts and in my feelings and in my body on and off for nine months. The reason I'm telling you this story here and what I found extraordinary at the time was that while I was going through a deep and very real period of sadness, I realised that the way I looked at life had changed completely. There were now two different ways that I could choose to engage with life and they were both showing up, one after the other, every day, as my awareness shifted from sadness to presence. On the one hand, at times, and quite often during the first few months, I became caught up again with the sadness of that breakup and with the painful stories I had about what might have been. What was wrong with me and our relationship? What about this that happened, and what about that? But at other times throughout those same nine months, 
I was fully functioning and sometimes even inspired, and I was often filled with the strength and freedom that comes with letting go into the present moment. Life hadn't stopped, it kept on changing, and I was very aware of the power of being in action and living the dream. Living in the present moment, amazing things happened. The strength of being in action, rather than being caught up in my head, became very clear to me as I found my feet again in England and went on within three months and without having any money to fall back on to find my dream artist studio in an old watermill in South Devon. Then, while I still felt like crying at random points during each day, I made a clear decision to live a quiet life spending the winter months and then the warming Devon springtime days, drawing a series of what turned out to be very popular and widely collected South Devon scenes. In those somewhat sad nine months, I quietly made black and white drawings of local beauty spots and well-known Devon landmarks and showed them in the gallery I'd created at the mill. While I was still feeling sad at heart, at the same time, I really got into those drawings and the task of turning them into greetings cards and prints. Things moved on until, with a couple of young guys who decided to stay at the mill to help me, I'd arranged to sell my work through more than 30 different outlets in South Devon. My drawings were everywhere, in shops, pubs, galleries and restaurants, and the commissions and orders that flew in kept me and the little gang of artists and ne'er-do-wells who had gathered around the mill busy and happy throughout the wonderful summer of 76. What I'm doing my best to illustrate in this story is that once Rudy had introduced me to relative time and space, and I got it, the practice of present moment awareness and living in the moment that I adopted changed my relationship to what had been my everyday familiar and habitual old mind and the world around me. The part of me that was in action, present and living the dream no longer needed to be stopped or held back by the painful aspects of my sorrowful, emotional and psychological states or by painful recent events. That's one of the very good reasons I'm still doing my best to encourage you to adopt a practice of present moment awareness. It's liberating. Do me a favour, become aware of the present moment again right now so that I can point something else out about present moment awareness. I'm now going to assume that you're relaxed, connected and being simply present. We now know because we're experiencing it in presence, that the present moment has a completely different quality of aliveness about it to anything that we imagine. It's not just another beautiful place you imagine in your future or a peak experience that you remember from your past. It will never be something that you can tick off and add to your list of achievements. Presence is simply the one place where we are alive. When we let go of our personal concerns, we experience presence as a deeply peaceful and timeless oneness, don't we? There's a sense in being that this is the person we really are. 
we find ourselves living in a deep and inexplicable harmony and connectedness with everything in the living matrix of life. This is our true nature, and until our mind kicks in to remind us about all the problems and the challenges we face in today's world, it's perfect. As always, in order to be aware again of being alive in the present moment, we need to shift our awareness out of its default position in our word-processing head and back into what we're experiencing. At this point, it's important to say, just by way of passing on some good advice that wiser people once passed on to me, don't fight against the default position that your awareness is usually in. Don't make an enemy of your everyday mind. This is just the way it is. Everyone I've ever known lives in this same human paradox of both living and interpreting their lives. And there's no point in fighting that or trying to change it or get rid of it. Our job is to find a way of living with our everyday mind while not being driven by it. It's important that we don't blame ourselves or make an enemy of me. It's just a fact of life that we modern folk do spend a lot of time engaged with our interpretation of life instead of just living the life that we're alive in. We're often unconsciously caught up in our heads and engaged with some subtle story explaining whatever's happening to ourselves. Recently, I came across what I thought was a useful, non-technical definition of mind in a book called Buddhist Healing in Lao. In that book, Denise Tomeko says that the mind is a term used to describe the higher functions of the brain, particularly those of which we are subjectively conscious, such as personality traits, emotion, reason, memory, intelligence and thought. When we talk about being in our heads, or the default position that our awareness adopts, we're talking about what she calls our subjective consciousness. The simple way I like to characterise it these days is to start off by recognising that we have an amazing set of tools in our everyday mind and that, for most of us, by the time we're adults, our mind's doing an astounding job guiding us through the everyday world and navigating us through our everyday lives. Our thinking mind is an amazing tool. Most young adults I know are already developing a complex set of skills and knowledge and a bunch of honed attitudes that all help them to deal with the everyday world. The more fortunate amongst us, whether we know it or not, have developed a mind capable of dealing with adult life and, while it's always an ongoing project, those skills and our knowledge and aptitudes and those healthy attitudes are helping us cope with whatever circumstances might arise in our lives. Presence is quite a different realm, where we get to realise things through experience that our everyday mind can't understand and doesn't really have any convincing answers for. For instance, in presence, we experience our true nature and total interconnectedness. We experience who we really are in the realm of being, not in knowing. Being in presence, then finding ourselves back in our mind, 
we soon realise that we're engaging with life in two very different ways and that it makes a huge difference to the quality of aliveness and connection that we experience. Let me illustrate what I mean by going back to my story about splitting up with my girlfriend in Holland all those years ago. Although I was still often sad in those dark and dingy winter months of 1975, and I was often caught up in my emotions and memories and the mental stories and personal dramas going on in my mind, I was no longer my own worst enemy. Having taken up the practice of noticing time and again that I was thinking or interpreting my feelings and then choosing to let go into the present moment, I gradually stopped identifying myself as the person with a fixed, recognisable and troubled thing to deal with. I realised that at any moment I could choose to buy into that identity or not. After the breakdown of that relationship, my mind continued to recite and to repeat the same painful dramas, reaffirming time and again that I was a hurt and troubled person with old and fixed emotional and psychological characteristics that I didn't like. My mind kept reminding me that those painful stories were going on. But I was learning not to take those things personally, and I now had the option, whenever I remembered, to let go into an untroubled present moment where that painful drama was not, I noticed, actually happening. I no longer believed those stories in my mind were true or took them personally. I no longer needed to believe those painful labels and the fixed parts of the personal interpretation that was running through my head. I used to think that I needed to work through those situations and sort them out, but now I simply didn't believe the mental stories and dramas were me. I constantly chose to be the person alive and living in the present moment and I learned from experiencing without denying or pushing away any of those thoughts or feelings. I could see them for what they were, thoughts and feelings, without getting caught up in them or taking them personally. Awareness is like a light shining on life. In the light of present moment awareness, you see with fresh eyes how your mind is working and you don't need to identify with it. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a gateway to freedom and beauty. And a major part of that freedom is the freedom of not being identified with the fixed personality that your mind continues to call me as it continues to claim, I did this and I did that and I should have done this and I shouldn't have done that. It's not that those emotional and psychological dramas stop happening. It's that they no longer define you. You're alive and free in the present moment, living at the very core of human being and these dramas, thoughts and interpretations of feelings are just passing through your mind. Why would you take them personally? Do you even need to deal with them? Provided that you've given up on the imperative for me to be right all the time or to work it all out, the answer's probably no. You are here now. Why bog yourself down in imaginary disputes and conflicts that are not really happening? Just being, as the Zen teachers say, is not a path to freedom, It's a path of freedom. 
when you let go into the present moment, you realise that you are free already, here and now. And it's also true that if you practice present moment awareness for many years, you will gradually learn to let go of more and more of the old me and to let the song of life come through. However, remember, if you turn that promise of gradual improvement into the main motivating force behind your practice of present moment awareness, you could easily miss the point that is right here, right now. You need to let that idea of gradual improvement go. While you're working on improving yourself, you're still giving energy to me's never-ending agenda of gradually fixing and improving who you are and working on an imaginary tick list of personal labels, the fixed problems and the labelled successes and failures that you still believe attached to you. That's a painful and damaging game and it keeps you tied into the self-oriented machinations of your everyday mind. You're focusing on me and all the time you're caught up in those difficult emotional dramas, you're not letting go into the present moment and simply experiencing. Please don't become preoccupied with how well or badly you're doing with present moment awareness and with assessing how aware you are. That's something else that's driven by ego. I've noticed that every now and again, one of my intelligent, highly motivated, creative and ambitious friends, the people I know and love, are tempted, or even it seems, programmed to treat being present as just another skill that they can learn, then tick off and add to their list of personal qualities and achievements. I've heard good friends of mine judge themselves and other people and the things that they do according to whether it was the sort of thing you'd do if you were really present. That approach completely misses the point. Presence is not about getting it right or about being more aware than somebody else and it's not about being a better person. Those are just some of the concerns and preoccupations of our everyday mind that we put aside when we let go into the present moment. Our everyday minds are busy working stuff out, fixing things and getting things right, while letting go into the present moment is something else entirely. These really are two different ways of engaging with life and present moment awareness is a lifelong practice you will never get right. It's very liberating to be aware of these two very different ways of engaging with life when we're dealing with emotions. Let's say something has happened and triggered a strong emotional reaction in you. You feel upset or uncomfortable or disturbed. Our default position and the way our everyday minds typically work is to identify what we were upset by by engaging with our interpretation of what happened and then once we've decided what we were upset by, we use our everyday mind to work it out and to deal with it. Our everyday mind turns a living event into a mental drama. Life becomes a never-ending soap opera that me is caught up in. With present moment awareness, instead of working out what you were upset by and what you might do about it or how you might put the situation right, you're able to let go of the drama as it arises in your mind, trust in the universe, give over control and let it go, coming back into the present moment. 
The key phrase in that process is giving up control. When you practice present moment awareness in the presence of a strong emotion, you realise first that you're caught up and identifying with a painful emotional drama in your head and body. Freedom comes through shifting your awareness out of your head and into your body and being open to the world around you. Then you remember that your real feelings are the physical sensations going on in your body, not the mental turmoil going on in your head. If you simply experience the sensations going on in your body without attaching stories to them and without struggling with them in any way, those physical sensations, in accordance with the ancient truism, this too will pass, will change and you'll be alive to and focused on the present moment you find yourself in. You're no longer stuck in the story. Life doesn't stop. If we hold on to our fixed emotional dramas and painful internal stories, it's worth asking ourselves whether we're more interested in winning or punishing ourselves than we are in letting go. Me would sometimes rather suffer than lose. We all know about family feuds that have gone on for decades and we all know people who seem to be their own worst enemy. Let me tell you a story. I was talking casually to a young friend of mine and I happened to mention the name of someone I'd just met, a young woman. For no apparent reason, the young man I was talking to started literally shaking. His eyes opened wide, his voice quivered with emotion and his body language was full of uncontrolled panic and desperation. He was almost jumping up and down in discomfort. When I asked, alarmed, what was going on, it turned out that this young woman had been his girlfriend for a few months when they were young teenagers and his memories of those days and the way she treated him or even just the mention of her name, brought up what he described as a really big thing for him. Those memories were enough to send him into a state of huge distress all those years later. Very concerned for my young friend's well-being, I quickly established that the extreme reaction wasn't to do with any current relationship that he had with the woman in question. He told me that he hadn't seen or heard from her for years. He was reacting to his own baggage of the terrible memories he associated with her name. I did my best to get my troubled young friend to focus on the physical sensations happening in his body and not to associate those sensations with the painful story that he was clearly reenacting. In that moment, it looked as if he was experiencing a powerful flow of changing physical sensations. I imagine his gut was quaking, his heart was beating fast, his breathing was noisy, unsettled, he felt close to tears, his body was shaking, and so on. He was clearly suffering. Nobody says it's easy to practice present moment awareness in a situation like that. But ultimately, the question in that moment is, can I let go of this internal drama that has me in its grip and recognise that I am being my own worst enemy, or am I unable or unwilling to let it go? There's nothing glib or easy about that challenge, but essentially, every time it happens, 
if we're self-aware, we get to see which of these two options we choose to give our energy and our power to. Do I continue to put a lot of my thought energy into this really big thing for me and disappear painfully into my everyday mind with its awfully familiar and repetitive set of deeply troubling emotional and psychological responses that certain situations always trigger? Or do I choose to let go into the present moment? On a deeper level, do I continue to believe that I'm that person with a fixed emotional and psychological history and identity that make me who I am and treat that as my ultimate reality? Do I keep believing that despite all my good work, I'm still a person with a list of emotional and psychological problems and tendencies that I need to find a way of living with and that I have a number of unfinished relationship issues and dramas that will keep cropping up every now and again and inevitably cause me discomfort and occasionally even suffering? The tough bottom line of that approach whatever the individual flavour of your internal dramas happen to be, is that you're continuing to identify with your everyday mind, your default position and the ways that you've labelled yourself. Ultimately, you're choosing to be your own worst enemy by immersing yourself in that part of your mind that wants you to relate to life through the interpretation it gives to you and not through life itself. By choosing to identify with the stories and the dramas that you call reality, and by believing in yourself as someone with a set of unique, recognisable and fixed characteristics, you're claiming to be a person who knows who you are, and you're choosing to hold on to that fixed picture, however painful it is. Once you've found the two-way switch to present moment awareness, you're able, by remembering to simply let go of all those terrible and pointless dramas going on in your head as they arise. You can shift your awareness and reconnect, even in the middle of some sort of emotional drama, with your actual experience of bodily sensations as they arise in the uncomplicated flow of the present moment. Letting go into the present moment becomes a choice. Here's a new present moment, and you're the watcher, observing the sensations going on in your body in a free, still and quiet manner. You're coming to recognise that being present means being totally connected and living harmoniously in the world. You're experiencing what it is to be alive and you no longer need to connect that experience of aliveness and those sensations in your body with the internalised dramas or really big things that you had going on in your head. To someone who practices present moment awareness, there is no real choice. Why would you choose not to be free, not to have an inner stillness, peace and quiet? and not to experience being totally interconnected and alive in a complete and mysterious harmony with everyone and everything in the universe? Why would you choose not to have a strong, loving and deeply supportive connection with the very core of your own being, with oneness and the absolute, at the very heart of your daily life? Why would you choose not to regard that experience of being alive as who you are and accept it as your identity, 
rather than continuing to regard yourself as a complicated baggage of emotional and psychological characteristics and problems. The moment you catch yourself involved in some painful internal drama that an event has just triggered, that's the time to give up control, to let go of the story and to simply accept the physical feelings that are going on in your body as unadulterated experiences. It's not that those physical sensations, whatever they are, have gone away. It's that you are now present to your physical experiences and aware of a flow of changing sensations in your body. You're no longer attaching some internal drama or story to those physical experiences. Life goes on, and like everything else, your physical sensations will change. They're no longer a big deal when they're not attached to some big story. Letting go into the present moment involves you giving up control. It's about taking a break from your everyday mind, from me, that internal mechanism that takes things personally. Our minds are constantly working on redefining me and always protecting and maintaining that illusion of me in the way that they interpret, label, judge, categorise and compare whatever they tell you is happening in life. Me has a highly personal and conceptualised point of view. Choosing to be present and not at the mercy of your personal point of view is choosing to eat the meal of life and not eat the menu. And it becomes relevant whenever something on the menu captures your attention. Choosing to be open and present is an experience of being simply alive and connected, interconnecting with everyone and everything in the moment. It's not about being a separate somebody called me. So far in this narrative, I've been doing my best to share with you a liberating insight someone gave to me when I was a young man. Now I want to jump ahead in terms of my own personal life story to get to another equally liberating and wonderful insight that I didn't really get until I was a much older man. Here's hoping that you get it much earlier than that. You don't need to be any special age to have this wonderful insight. Unlike the encounter I had with Relative Time and Space and Rudy in 1974, this second and life-changing insight took me years and decades to really get. And for many years I thought I'd got it, but I hadn't. In fact, it's worse than that. This is another insight that holds the key to living a wonderful and liberated life. But if my own experience is anything to go by, it's an insight that reveals itself bit by bit, and only when you're ready for it. Let me tell you the story. When I was about 60 years old, I'd just completed a model making for design and media degree course in Bournemouth, and I'd been working as a technician in an applied arts degree department in a college for a couple of years, when a good friend of mine mentioned a Zen meditation group that he was part of. I decided, just for the sake of it, to give it a go. My thoughts about meditation in general at that time, and the benefits I might get from sitting with a friendly local group, were coloured by my own stories and personal history of meditating in India back in the 1970s. I've never been a religious person and I'd never even heard the word enlightenment 
until somebody mentioned it when I was in Rishikesh in India in 1978. Things were happening quite quickly. Three weeks later, I found myself in an ashram with a thousand sannyasins from around the world sitting at the feet of somebody they regarded as a living master. Long story short, I spent nine months there, thoroughly out of my depth, but meditating every day, all day, at the Rajneesh Ashram in Pune and listening to Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh giving 90-minute talks each morning until one day, after about five months, I heard him say something to the effect of, You're all sitting here trying to work out if I'm enlightened and you're missing out on the opportunity of your own enlightenment. I suddenly got it, and from that moment I put aside all my considerations and let go into the possibility that was there for all of us in that hotbed of enlightenment. Many years later, in Poole, without realising it, me had built up a big story about that experience in India, and despite the fact that I hadn't thought about it much, it turned out that me had lots of considerations about meditating. I remembered again the daunting effort and the painful self-observation involved as I watched the many diverse and complicated sides to my personality in an ashram when I was 28 years old and how tough that experience had been when I set out to drop the ego in a committed quest for enlightenment. Because of those memories, 30 years later, while I was very happy to join a new meditation group and to meet a handful of new friends, I had no real expectation that meditating once a week could possibly be a life-changing experience. It just seemed like a generally healthy and friendly thing to do, so I joined the group. One interesting thing about that, in retrospect, is that Zen meditation is about sitting with no expectation and letting go of any desire to achieve anything from it. Zen means just sitting. So it turned out that I was in an ideal place when I joined the group. I just turned up every week and we sat together without judging as best we could whether any particular meditation session had been a good one or not. We were just sitting. By the way, I'm not trying to persuade you as you read this narrative to take up meditation. I imagine that most of you have already considered it and you're either meditating regularly or not and that you've got your own good reasons for choosing to meditate or not. This is just a story about something that happened to me. After I'd been sitting with his group for a while, that same friend told me about some free Zen talks he listened to, free podcasts from the San Francisco Zen Centre, and I started listening to them while working on the Life in the Hedgerow drawings that you might see in these pages. For ten years, nearly every day, I let those talks drift past my ears without holding on to what the speaker was saying. I only made notes occasionally when something really caught my attention. Mostly, what listening to those talks did was give me plenty of time and support to contemplate the nature of my everyday mind and the nature of just this, presence, while drawing occurred. After a time, I kept hearing those Zen teachers talking about the Buddhist principle of no-abiding self. 
the realisation and deep acceptance that we are fundamentally a totally interconnected, interactive and ever-changing part of the oneness we experience in presence, rather than the separate self that we think we are. This insight is like a koan. The more we contemplate it, the more it reveals. Over the years, engaging with that koan opened another wonderful and life-changing door of liberation. It seems natural to me that people with present moment awareness gravitate towards simple living and have a responsible and caring attitude. When you come to appreciate the simple and unadulterated beauty of every living moment and learn to enjoy the space and the freedom of experiencing just this arising in presence, caring for people, caring for everything that lives on earth, and caring for the planet itself seems like a natural expression of that connectedness you're experiencing. But before we get carried away with a beautiful vision of how things could be if only... Let's come back down to earth and remember that all these rich and varied stories and dramas that fill our minds are an implicit part of who we are, and they always will be. Me brings shape, purpose, meaning and substance to our lives. Our days are not full of spacious, dreamy emptiness and calm. For most of us, most of the time, they're full of situations and events and relationships and conversations and a myriad of things to do and places to go. While we've been talking about present moment awareness, and I've been playfully referring to the relationship between me and I, and pointing out that you can free up your life and reconnect with what it really means to be a human being by taking up a practice of present moment awareness and letting go into the present moment. It's important to acknowledge the amazing variety of our individual lives, the extraordinary diversity of our experiences, and the way that we interpret those experiences. My life story and the way that I look at it is hugely different to yours and the way you look at life. Let me go back and give you another quick thumbnail flavour of my background, my dreams, my interests and my passions as a young man to give you a chance to consider and to contemplate just how thoroughly different your own life story is to mine. In 1974... I was a young man fresh out of a very ordinary northern English town called Scunthorpe, of all places, and I was on a mission. My vivid imagination and driven nature, as is often the way with young men and women, were mostly focused on me and what I was going to do with my life. I imagined mine would be an artist's life, making hard-hitting and awareness-raising social commentaries, playing with all the different creative and artistic forms and being fully involved through creative acts and radical political and social activism in changing the world, as you do. I imagined spending a life struggling alongside beautiful and alternative thinking men and women, seeking together to change and to heal the bland, switched off and indifferent society that we lived in. I anticipated years of standing bravely on the front line of radical social movements that would change the world. That's par for the course for a young man, isn't it? I was 20 years old in 1968. 
So for me, adult life began with the turn on, tune in and drop out radical hippie politics of my 60s youth with its alternative society and its love generation. That 60s focus morphed until the 70s and 80s changed into decades of personal and social transformation, the hunger project, results and a transformational local creating space community of artists and musicians that came together in Bournemouth. These days, I feel close to today's Extinction Rebellion and the Transition Towns movement, and I think of myself as part of a concerned and active minority, all busy doing what we can to turn other people on to adopting the best ways we know of creating a sustainable future for humans on the planet. As a much older man now, my commitment and support for close friends and family remains strong and close to my heart. I'm with all those good people who keep themselves actively involved and who stand on the front line of groups and organisations committed to a life-enhancing agenda, working for the future well-being of people and planet in a time of great uncertainty and widespread conflicting and self-destructive social forces. When it comes to questions of individual identity and who we think we are, our everyday minds have plenty to say. And when it comes to identifying our connections within the wider society, I hear a lot of talk these days about tribes Let me tell you a story about a conversation I had with my partner when she and I were in a long car journey. We often get into quite deep, still and reflective conversations just to pass the time. She and I had spoken about tribes a few days previously, so it wasn't too surprising when she commented out the blue that she didn't think tribes were a bad thing and that they had a lot going for them. I know that she gains a great deal of value and satisfaction from the things she does with her close friends. My partner's part of a tight-knit group of active and socially-minded friends who share values and who've been busy for many years organising community-based activities in our hometown. For my own part, over the last couple of years, I've really enjoyed getting out into the local live music scene again after a long break. It's been lots of fun to get to know a new generation of local musicians and I love the sense of solidarity and being part of a mixed ages crowd who all share the same interests and passions. Back in the car, I understood what my partner was saying and I agreed. But what came up for me as we spoke was the divisive aspect of modern tribalism that we all get to see and hear about whenever we tune into the day's national and international news and politics. There, the tribalism is volatile, confrontational and bitter. Reflecting on these two sides to tribes, I made the point that it isn't so much a question of whether it's a good or a bad thing that we identify with particular tribes. It's simply inevitable With our everyday minds, we categorise and label ourselves and other people and we build up historical evidence of who we think we are and who we think they are, and we believe it. That's just the way our minds work. Apart from our families, who we seem to have found without choosing, we choose the labels and the tribes we identify with 
and it gives us a great sense of belonging. The car journey continued in friendly silence while we each contemplated our own tribes and our sense of belonging and all the other topical tribes that came to mind from that day's news coverage. The prevailing thought that came up for me was to do with the missing tribe. Whenever I reflect on the nature of our society, I see a country and a world knowingly or unknowingly putting all of its faith and belief in everyday minds and the power of the very best and worst of those human me-minds to shape, influence and manage the country we all live in. Me is working it all out and deciding on every aspect of our present and future lives on the planet. Me rules the world and I is left sidelined, even though we only need to glance at the state of the planet to see how that trust in the best of human me minds is working out. Led by me, our world appears to be divided down into innumerable different tribes with endless conflicting aims and goals and plans and with innumerable contrasting ideas too diverse to ever be consolidated. All the time our world turns its back on I and gives no value to presence, it suffers and is divided. All the time that our deep and harmonious human connection has no power, there's a missing tribe. Faced with seven and a half billion me minds, all struggling to satisfy their own endless lists of keenly felt needs and desires, where is that global tribe of I people, deeply aware that they already live harmoniously in a completely interconnected and interchanging, living and experiential world? Where is that naturally responsible, wise and compassionate tribe who are united in experiencing the freedom and beauty of life arising, not only as the myriad of infinitely different phenomena that our everyday minds describe to us, but more fundamentally in being, the perfect and timeless, ever-changing oneness that we're all alive in. That missing tribe is made up of human beings who live in the moment, valuing the richness and mysterious beauty of presence and enjoying the deep peace and harmony of not having to cater for a needy, separate self. These tribal human beings are present and alive and responsive, simply being. They choose not to be involved with or beguiled by self-serving motivations, whether those motivations come from within their own minds or from elsewhere, and they're not tempted to act in ways that might cause suffering. How much does our modern world need that missing tribe to step out of the shadows and for its global voice to be heard? These days, I have a vision of something I like to playfully call the human being fix. When it comes to dealing with the problems of the world and the complicated question of if and how human beings are to survive the next century as a thriving species on Earth... Some people put their faith in science and technology and call for a technological fix. Seeing how putting a single piece of the jigsaw, present moment awareness, into place transforms our experience of being alive, I have a different dream. 
I dream of a generation of mothers who teach their young and growing children that their deepest human roots are in presence, never letting them forget that at their very core they're human beings. In exactly the same way that we encourage our toddlers to learn to walk and to talk, in my vision, the world has a generation of mothers who never stop pointing out to their growing children that there are two fundamental ways we engage with life and that who you are is a human being, alive in presence, not what you think you are. That way, when those children come to maturity, they'll naturally love the world and everyone and everything in their connected world as themselves. And by being themselves in presence and not believing in or identifying with the self-oriented stories and dramas going on in their heads, that generation will naturally heal, transform and let go of all the divisive stories and dramas that they live through. No longer preoccupied with or limited by the endless personal concerns that have filled the lives of us previous generations, they will naturally put their attention, their time and their energy into millions of small but caring and compassionate acts in the moment. And in that way, together they'll build a peaceful and harmonious future for human beings on the planet. I hope that quick thumbnail sketch of my own idiosyncratic dreams and lifelong preoccupations will give you some sort of flavour of my life so that you can now see that your experiences and your lifelong preoccupations and your outlook on life are very different to mine. You and I are like two different universes. But when it comes to the relationship between me and I, we're all in the same boat. I'd like to invite you to take presence, the single piece of the jigsaw of life that I've spoken about here, and by adopting a practice of letting go into the present moment and reconnecting with what it means to be a human being, transform your life right now. Whatever your life experiences, your lifelong preoccupations and your outlook are, please let go into relative time and space and let the song of life come through. Peace and love.